In and through exists to equip the church to be hearers and doers of the word. Yes, it does. I'm Tim. And I'm Marshall. How you doing? Good. Good. Yeah. You ready for some Augustine? I'm ready for some Augustine. So here's here's what I was thinking about. When we when I was preparing for this, I was thinking we made some statements about Constantine. Mm-hmm. Saying there's so much that gets attributed to Constantine. And like 90% of it doesn't stick. Right. Could the opposite be true of Augustine? <laughs> Not that things don't get attributed to him. Everything is attributed to Augustine as well. Right. But it probably sticks. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's fair. Yeah. He, he definitely was, I mean, he established a lot of things. He did a lot of things. He thought a lot of things. Um, he wrote a lot of he things. He wrote a lot of things. His biographer famously said, Anyone who tells you they've read all of Augustine is a liar. <laughs> and this is a man who lived with him and was his biographer. Yeah. Right? Who surely read most. I would think right? so. Yeah. So just as, as a top sort of getting started thing, hmm. Augustine, easily the most influential church father, hmm. maybe most influential thinker. Mm. in the history of the church. That's probably a fair assessment. And uh, yeah, I, I think I'd agree with that. And a lot of people would. And because he wrote about everything. He did. He wrote in response to heresies. Mm-hmm. He wrote just to write about subjects. Mm-hmm. He wrote books and letters. Mm-hmm. Lots and of sermons. everything he ever thought about mm-hmm. was preserved. A lot of it, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, yes. A lot of it was. I mean, I'm sure there's certain things that are lost to time. So there's oh, probably yeah. even more. Yeah, for sure. But, but yeah, there's a lot there. Um, yeah, he's, he's a really interesting character. He even had a way of preserving his deep, dark secrets. Oh, he did. We'll talk about yeah, that we, later. We will. We will. But let's, let's get into a little bit of, just briefly here for a few minutes, talk about a little bit of the historical context in, right. in which um, Augustine mm-hmm. is, is living. Um, we're, we're kind of in the very tail end of the 300s and into the 400s now. Uh, that's kind of where Augustine's lifespan lies. And there are some significant changes going on in the world. Uh, the, first, the first thing is that there's a decline of Rome's importance. Again, we, we've talked about this, this coming, but it, it happens by degrees. Why are you just laughing? I, you know where this some is Some significant things have happened. <laughs> like... The fall of Rome. Well, just, yeah, okay, we'll get there, we'll get there, we'll get there. So, so first, before that happens, Rome actually moves their capital out of Rome, technically. Why not? Well, so part of the reason is because those, those nasty barbarians are giving them a run for their money. So they actually move the capital away from Rome, uh, mm-hmm. closer to the frontier, so it's in Milan, and then it's moved to a place called Ravenna. They're both kind of in the north of Italy. Um, and meanwhile, in the east, Constantinople is quickly becoming the most important city in the world. And, and by the end of the 5th century, so by the end of the 400s, it's going to have triple the population of Rome. It's going to be way more important than Rome right. by that point. Not, not in the year 400, but by the year 500, there's definitely a switch. Right. One cool thing that's happening in this time over in the east in Constantinople is Theodosius, one of the emperors, is building these massive walls around the city. When I say massive, there's there's three different layers to it, including a moat. But the inner wall was 40 feet tall and 15 feet thick. It had 96 guard towers that were then 60 feet tall. Wow. And those walls would stand and not be breached for over a thousand years until the Ottoman Empire built this massive ungodly cannon that could bust through it in the late 1400s. I've lived in a lot of cool cities. I really have. Mm. I've never lived in a city with a moat. Yeah. Right? It's like they had a wall and then a moat and then a bigger wall. And then on top of the big wall, they had towers. It was, it w- I mean, it, it would still be impressive today, but you think about for that time, like, yeah, Stratford's cool. 
Yeah. But doesn't we got a river. We don't have a wall, though. Toronto's cool. Mm. Lima, Buenos Aires. Mm-hmm. No moats. No moats. <laughs> no moats. Yeah. Um, yeah, so so the East is going to stand. So you could say, in a sense, that the, the Roman Empire, to some extent, is going to last another thousand years. Yeah. yeah. But not the Western part of it. No, not the part, not, 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 not the, the Roman, not part. the OG Roman <laughs> part. Uh, no. So in 410, Rome is going to be sacked by the Visigoths and the Visigoths are led by their King Alaric. Now here's, here's something and, and modern historians would, will give me a pat on the back for this. I'm sure because these, these events are referred to as barbarian invasions, but we really need to evaluate what that means. Like the term bar- barbarian comes from like a Greek slur, because when they heard non-Greek people talk, all they heard was bar, 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 bar. Right. So the Goths and these other Germanic tribes, they've been in contact with Rome for hundreds of years at this point, and they have developed economically, politically, technologically, Mm -hmm. culturally. They were Christianized. Alaric, the king of the Visigoths who conquered Rome, was a Christian. So here's, here's the thing. That barbarian is a derogatory term mm-hmm. today is carryover from more than a thousand years of this Alexandrian influence, which was even thousands of years before that, mm. that if you don't speak Greek, you're ignorant. You're a barbarian. <laughs> and so the connotation then is just like, these guys are speaking barbar. What's barbar? Anything that's not Greek, right? <laughs> I don't understand them. They must be ignorant. They must be Neanderthals. Right. And that we still use the word in that way mm-hmm. is just this sort of, it's not really xenophobia, but maybe it kind of is. I don't know. Yeah. Uh, this idea that, if, yeah. If you're not know. like us, you're a barbarian. If you don't speak our language. Right, but but that the word barbarian means that <laughs> to us now is just the carryover from right, this right. ancient racism. Yeah, it really yeah. is, yeah. And the whole thing, the fall of Rome, it's, man, the whole thing, it's a, it's a really complicated story, and we don't have time to go into it. This is not a world history podcast, but just trying to give some context. But there's a lot of things happening in the, the outside world where, where there's people moving to different places, maybe for environmental reasons Mm -hmm. even. um, And it's pushing people, creating this domino effect. And so the Visigoths have been in the Roman Empire. Alaric fought in the Roman army, but they're being mistreated as outsiders, unwelcome outsiders living in the land. And they just kind of get fed up with it. And they just take Rome and they strip it of all the wealth. Now, there was violence. It was not a good day. It was a terrible day. By contemporary standards of the day, it was actually pretty tame at this point, uh, partly because because these quote-unquote quote barbarians were Christians, they allowed people to take sanctuary in churches. Um, so, But they, they carry off all the wealth. The crazy thing, though, is that these Visigoths, they end up establishing a kingdom in the, in the, in the area, not in Rome. Uh, Rome kind of bounces back for a little bit, um, but they end up fighting alongside the Romans against Attila the Hun 40 years later. So <laughs> I love it when these names keep popping up. These, like, like these big names, names that you know. Yeah. It's like, yeah, Attila yeah. the Hun. Yeah. He, he makes an appearance. Um, so anyways, it's just, it's complicated. It's complicated, but it's definitely, I mean, for Rome, which was once called the eternal city to fall. Mm-hmm. That's a gut punch. It is. That's a gut punch for, for Western civilization. Um, yeah. And they're, 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 man, they're just bleeding at this point. Um, they, around this time, they're pulling out all their forces from Britain. They lose Spain to some of these Germanic tribes. They lose parts of Gaul. Um, it's a mess and it's not totally over yet, but it's, it's, it's coming. It's kind of like they're, they're, they're a terminally ill patient. They're just not yeah. dead yet. And in the midst of it all, people are still living life. Yeah. And there is a Christian woman mm-hmm. and an atheistic man mm-hmm. who get married. They do. And they have a son. Yeah. And they name him? St. Augustine. <laughs> <laughs> it's like Aurelius Augustina, Augustinus or something like that. Now, one of the things I wanted to ask you about 
was the pronunciation of his name. Now, I noticed we, oh. we're both saying it the same way. We're both saying Augustine. Yeah, the, I'm, There are some people, I read an article. This guy took the time to write a whole article to argue that it must be Augustine. But I'm like, so then should Constantine be Constantin? Constantin? Like, no. Yeah, I don't know. This is the way that, that I see it. Most people say Augustine. Mm-hmm. But the people who say Augustine, I just assume, are smarter than everyone else. <laughs> and I'm not at their level. And so apparently they know something that no one else does. Yeah. Um, and so I, I still say Augustine. Yeah. And I just let it ride. Yeah. You, the modern version of this is Tim Challies. Tim Callies. Oh, yeah, yeah. Right? Like does he even prolific, know? Prolific writer. <laughs> And a uh, hundred years from now, no one will know. I don't think anyone knows now. <laughs> we'll have to ask him. Maybe he listens to the podcast. No, I, I <laughs> bet he's not our one listener. He, no, I de- definitely doesn't. Yeah. He's too busy writing books or writing things about other people's books. Um, so yeah, so he was born in 354 in the Let's whatever. Sure. Sure. It's a place that's now in Algeria. So Northern Africa. Uh, mother, like you said, Christian, father, pagan, ethnically Berber, so like African, but mm-hmm. culturally Roman, mm-hmm. spoke Latin in the home growing up. Um, as a young boy, he's sent away to go to school, like at like a, essentially like a boarding school at age 11. Um, and it's, it's interesting. There's a story in his autobiography where he talks about when he came to understand his sinful nature. And it's when him and some boys steal some fruit from a fruit tree. Right. And he says, you know, I didn't steal the fruit because I was hungry. I stole mm-hmm. it because I wasn't allowed. Yeah. In fact, he, so he goes on to say, uh, I had more fruit and better fruit at home. Mm. I just, I stole it for the thrill of stealing. Mm-hmm. That was the reward. Yeah. Yeah. So he recognizes that in hindsight and, uh, and later on, still as a young man, he's a little bit older, 17, uh, goes to the big city in the area, Carthage, to continue his education. And he's studying rhetoric, which, uh, as you kind of mentioned before, uh, public speaking, essentially. Public speak that was like one of the highest um, aspirations in the Roman world. Like one of the highest things that you could study was rhetoric. That was mm-hmm. seen to be like, that's what, if you were of the wealthy class and you could do it, like that was... That's what all the cool kids did. That's what all the cool kids did. What, right. what would it be now? Like engineering? Same. <laughs> Same. Let's go on, because we do it. <laughs> <laughs> it's still, it's not as prized as it once was, but it's still what the cool kids do. Sure, sure. I mean, if you want to be an influencer, I guess you know how to, you know how to I, talk to people. I would say at seminary, that's kind of a, the thing as well, right? Seminary so for sure, yeah. A lot of, a lot of people want to be preachers. They mm-hmm. don't want to be pastors. They want to be preachers. Mm-hmm. And they're excited to be up there in front of everybody, given the what fours on Sunday. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's still a pretty prized thing. Yeah. Although true. it is also... People's greatest fear, yeah, statistically more than greater fear than death. More than death. <laughs> mm-hmm. It's like public speaking, death, and clowns. <laughs> oh yeah, don't. Oh man, don't. I'm not down with clowns. Let's let's move on. Um, so at this point in his life, he begins reading uh, guys like Cicero, and he starts getting in, interested in philosophy and that sort of thing as well. Mm-hmm. And around this time, as a young man, he gets joined up with a group called the Manichaeans. Yeah. <laughs> An interesting group. An interesting group, yes. Um, so Manichaeanism uh, was a relatively new religion at this point, um, had Persian origins. It was uh, founded by a prophet named Manny, who saw himself as the successor of Jesus and others. Um, yeah. It was all about dualism. So, okay. So, essentially, it's very similar to Gnosticism. was kind of connected mm-hmm. to Gnosticism, what we talked about before. This struggle between the spiritual world of light and the material world of dark, and there's this back and forth. And it took bits of uh, Zoroastrianism, which was a Persian religion, uh, Buddhism, right. and Christianity. So, in Manichaean, like, art, because it, it, actually, it actually spread from like from Persia all the way east to China and all the way west to the far western reaches of the Roman Empire. It it 
until the rise of Islam, it was actually the main, um, I guess, opponent of Christianity. Yeah, and so the the interesting thing about it is there's so much Christian imagery mm-hmm. in it, but the way that it that Christian imagery functions is very Eastern, very Buddhist. Right. As you say. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and so, so you have things like the yin and the yang, the the need of the light and the dark, and the way the two intertwine. Mm-hmm. Uh, but through reincarnation and lots of prayer throughout those lives, you can become fully the light. But this light and dark are represented by Jesus and Satan. Mm. And yeah, yeah, it's it's a, it's a bizarre blend of the two. Yeah, it really is. And and I would say the the nearest modern interpretation that would be similar mm. would probably be Mormonism and the way that they look at mm. the brotherhood of Jesus and Satan. Mm. Uh, not the multiple lives thing, mm-hmm. uh, but that sort of yeah. constant tension. And, and weird kind of like moral, obscure moral rules on things that seem, yeah. seem to be like strange. Yeah. yeah. There's, there's, so to give you an example of this, so there, there were essentially two levels in the Manichaean faith, right? The elect and the hearers and the elect, well, none of them consumed alcohol or meat. Um, so they were vegetarian, but the elect didn't harvest plants or prepare food because they considered that murder. So the lesser ones who were just the hearers, they would prepare the food for the elect. And then the elect would pray that the hearers would be forgiven for their sin of chopping vegetables. Yeah. Like that's a thing. Interesting. I mean, how does anyways? uh, Yeah. I, you know, I feel that when people are like, Oh, there won't be any meat in heaven because there won't be any death. I'm like, well, you know, plants die too. (laughs) Yeah. Who knows? Uh, but yeah, so th- and there's multiple multiple categories and levels of deities that we pray to, and it's just, it's it's complicated. But Augustine's kind of caught up in all of this when um, he is teaching grammar and rhetoric, but he's just so disappointed with his students' behavior, and he assumes that it's because he's in this backwater. So he's like, you know what, I'm going to go to Rome, mm-hmm. and there the quality of the students will be so much better because it'll be true Romans who take their studies seriously. So he moves to Rome. And it's to- totally not it. Yeah, it's all the same. Yeah, and students not paying their dues or bribing or just not taking it seriously, and he's mm-hmm. super discouraged. So he ends up looking for work, and he finds uh, a job teaching in the royal court in Milan at this point, because remember, the capital has now moved away from the city of Rome, and he meets Ambrose. The Ambrose. The Ambrose, yeah. whom we discussed last week, I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, and so Augustine was already skeptical of his Manichaeanism at this point, uh, but wasn't really interested in Christianity either. Um, And he's talking with Ambrose, and he admired him for his intelligence and the quality of his character, uh, but he wasn't really interested, at least at first, in Christian teaching. You know, in in preparation for this, I watched a video about uh, Augustine, and from a political standpoint mm. about his politics, particularly because of his work, City of God. Sure. Uh, and the person doing the lecture was not a Christian. Mm-hmm. Um, and the way that he talked about the discussions between Ambrose and uh, Augustine was really comical because he, he worded Ambrose's witness to Augustine in such a way as to say, uh, Ambrose recommended to Augustine that he would consider Christianity, mm. right? Just sort of like, you know, they're sitting at dinner, you know, do you mind passing the salt? Hey, have you ever thought about being a Christian? No, all right. Uh, you know, <laughs> how's your how's your meal? Is it what you thought it would be? Uh, just a sort of passing thing as if Ambrose was not passionate about this being right. the form of truth for all men. Yeah, right? but what, what, what is interesting, though, for the relationship that they had is Ambrose kind of adopts Augustine to some degree, even before Augustine comes to the faith and just cares for him and watches over him. But yeah, I think he did more than just like casually recommend Christianity. Like it was like a new restaurant in town or something. (laughs) It was right. Yeah. Yeah. Anyways, but Augustine does eventually convert Mm -hmm. at the age of 31. Mm -hmm. I'm 31. Nice. No. 
And 31 then was probably like a lot further along in life than 31 now. Possibly so. But his, his conversion in some ways is instantaneous. Mm. But in some ways it's really not. Mm-hmm. Like he, he talks about how even from childhood his mom would pray for him. Mm-hmm. And his mom would teach him about scripture and teach him the gospel. He, had a, he acknowledges that his mom was a devout mother and believer. Mm-hmm. And for, for those moms whose children aren't walking mm. with Christ and they pray for them and wonder if any of their encouragements and prayers matter, mm. it did for Augustine. It didn't for a long time. Mm-hmm. He, in, in confessions, he talks about her prayers and recommendations as womanly advice that he would blush to have considered. <laughs> Because he was a man's man, rhetorician, right, guy. right, uh, and and a thrill seeker, fruit thief, <laughs> and, so, and so he doesn't have anything to do with these womanly suggestions yeah. of Christianity. And uh, and when he is converted, he credits her mm. next to the Holy Spirit entirely, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Um, and it happens in such an interesting way. You you can tell the story. Yeah, so it's a great story. Yeah, so he is kind of. He's hitting a bit of a low point, right? He's having a bit of a an existential crisis to some degree because he's rejected his former Manichaean beliefs. He's kind of seen it all to some degree, and he's wrestling with the authenticity of Christianity and whether or not this is, you know, this is something that he can truly. And he's invested. deep into Plato. Yeah, he's deep. Yeah, he's deep into uh, Neoplatonic philosophy and and that sort of thing, and trying to kind of wrap his mind around the you know the essential questions of human existence and all these things. And he is finds himself in a garden, and while there, he hears a child's voice saying, "Take it up and read." Take just it. singing. Yeah singing take up and, yeah rewrite yeah yeah singing yeah take up and read take up and from, read from like the other side of the garden wall yeah like a kid in the backyard playing and and interestingly enough there's not like a folk song or common nursery rhyme of the time mm-hmm. to this end mm-hmm. just sometimes kids randomly sing things yeah and uh, that's what he hears yeah and so and so he decides to do that and so he happens to have a copy of some of Paul's writings with him at mm-hmm. the time. And so imagine that he opens it up and, and uh, it's actually just opens it up randomly and, uh, and comes to Romans 13 uh, verses 13 and 14, which in our, our version says, uh, let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. And that hits him. Mm -hmm. He's wrestled with these things for a while. He's had like, like women on the side. He hasn't been married, but he's had kind of women on the side. He's even had a son through one of these relationships. Right. And he, you know, he has lived an indulgent lifestyle and he's experienced that and he's being called out of that and, you know, being told to put on the Lord, the Lord Jesus Christ. Yeah, he's very Roman in that way, right? Like mm-hmm. the the idea that he's going to study to be a philosopher mm-hmm. and a rhetorician. He wants to be a thinker, but at the same time, he's very given to just pacify the flesh. Like mm-hmm. whatever whatever the flesh craves, take it and and be okay with that. Mm-hmm. Uh, but but at the same time, he's not okay with it. Mm-hmm. He realizes there's something wrong about this, even though it's what him and all of his buddies are doing right and and so this passage of all passages it's no wonder he becomes the first one to really nail down concepts mm-hmm. of providence yeah the providential will of god yeah he does yeah so he is baptized um on an easter mm-hmm. because that's what they did then after like six years is it that many? Yeah, it's a while. Yeah, three to six. I yeah, think. yeah. So he's baptized by Ambrose. Um, he eventually, though, decides to return to his home country um, in North Africa, but his with his mother and his son, um, 
but his mother dies along the way and his son uh, dies shortly thereafter. And he decides to sell most of his property because his family was a wealthy family, sells the majority of it, um, then joins the priesthood and begins preaching regularly. Um, and he had a special focus in how to um, effectively preach from the different parts of the Bible, right? Mm-hmm. Um, seeing the whole as being God's word and, and, and diving into, you know, Old Testament, New Testament, right? The Gospels versus prophecy or whatever, right? Um, it's estimated that he preached nearly 10,000 sermons in his lifetime. Uh, and often they would be an hour long or more. Um, in some ways, and it was interesting, I was actually reading about his preaching style. Mm-hmm. Um, and in some ways he, he like, he had a lot of, used a lot of techniques and things that like we would use today. So he like walks while he's talking, he's using like analogies and situations from life. And he's using things like, um, like rhyming and metaphors and repetition, asking con- the congregation questions, like things that like seem almost like a modern style preaching mm-hmm. more, more like how you and I would preach than how preaching happened, you know, throughout most of church history. So it's kind of interesting to, um, to see yeah. that. Um, so I, I, I'll finish the kind of the biography here and then we, let's talk about his theology. Cause there's a lot of good things to talk about there, but, um, he becomes the Bishop of Hippo. Um, that's why he's known, remembered as Augustine of Hippo, even though he wasn't born there. Um, he wrote a lot of things, which we'll talk about, um, and then ends up dying during a siege of Hippo by the Vandals, and uh, which is a, another Germanic tribe, not just, you know, punk teenagers with spray cans. But another <laughs> another word that still exists in English yeah, go- as a derogatory term Goths and based on a group of people. <laughs> exactly. So the Vandals. Yeah. Um, so, But he dies of an illness, um, and then later when the city's destroyed, uh, they utterly destroy the city except for his church and his library, with they le- which they left untouched. Praise the Lord for it because oh, yeah. there's so much that would have been lost if it had been yeah. burned to the ground. So, and, and reportedly because they knew it was his. Yeah, yeah. And it was out of respect for him. Mm-hmm. It wasn't just like everything gets destroyed and, oh, we missed one. No. Right? They knew so, whose church that was and they chose right. not to burn it. Right. So... We know, we know more about Augustine's theology than any of the previous church fathers. Yes. Because he does a couple of things. One, as we've already said, he just writes and preaches feverishly. Mm-hmm. But he, he does so in a way that hasn't... I don't want to say we haven't seen it take place before. And it might just be that there's so many volumes of work that it feels different. Mm. But he's so much more systematic in it. Yeah. Right? Yeah. A, a lot of the things, a lot of the things, especially when you go way back, when we were talking about Origen and Justin, mm-hmm. we would say, well, he, we, we made some concessions for them. Mm-hmm. We said, you've got to understand they're speaking to a moment and it's contextualized and they don't have these thousands of years of history to stand on and, and these things haven't come up as problems and so they're not trying to be as careful with their words because of the potential problems they could come. Mm. We gave a lot of pass to that. Augustine doesn't take that pass. Mm. Augustine has seen hundreds of years of these issues come up and rise. He's very careful with his wording. Mm-hmm. He, he not only speaks to the problem, but he will speak to the fringe areas around the problem mm. uh, in a way that he's sort of aware that his answers can create other problems. And so he's very systematic and very thorough mm. in a way that a lot of people before haven't been. Right, right. Um, and so we, we have a lot on him because of that. Mm-hmm. He also chooses to write about most everything. Yeah. He's very broad in it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so that breadth of work also gives us a good picture of where he stands. Mm-hmm. And so... This is where I said at the beginning, a lot of people want to pin things on Augustine, and they're probably right. Yeah. Uh, it, even if the idea doesn't originate with him, mm-hmm. it probably passed through him. Yeah, and he's likely to have taken whatever that concept or idea was and to have articulated it in a very thoughtful, careful way. 
-hmm. So he might be working from something an earlier guy said or wrote, but he's going to take it and put it down in a way that um, is, is actually quite readable even for mm -hmm. the modern mind. Yeah. Um, in a way that just kind of logically makes sense in, in his argument. Yeah. yeah. Because I, I was thinking about this when I was reading. Uh, if we, we said early, it's, it's not, we wouldn't discourage it. We wouldn't tell people, oh, don't read the church fathers. Don't do it, right? right, right. But if someone was like, you know, maybe I should read the church fathers, to be like, well, you know what? There are other things that I would start with right. before the church fathers. Mm -hmm. uh, I think if you were just eager in reading some really old church writings, mm -hmm. I think Augustine is the place to start. Yeah, I, I think he's that kind of accessible. Mm -hmm. um, and he's going he's gonna to hit on topics that are going to strike close to home, mm -hmm. I think. Uh, because for all of the the greatness he had as a thinker, his capacity to self-evaluate mm. is enviable. Oh, yeah. Yeah, and you see that particularly in his autobiography, in his confessions, right? Which mm -hmm. I, I think we both might even we have. Both we both have our own copy. We both bring in a, an example of Augustine. Yeah. Mine's writing. the Penguin Classics. Which one's yours? Mine is Oxford. Oh, wow. Oxford University oh, Press. Oh, well, there you go. Which is far more prestigious it, Oxford University <laughs> than, than a penguin. Than penguins. Yeah. I don't know. It looks like is, he's wearing a tuxedo though. So. Yours is thicker. <laughs> yeah, maybe. Yeah, so that so it maybe makes I, you look smarter. Look, look, what's the artwork on yours look like? No one else can see this. Very similar. Very similar. I think Head I like my face crying. Yeah, I like my artwork yeah. better though. Sorry. Head in his face. Hands <laughs> to his face crying. <laughs> uh <laughs> sorry. Oh, sorry. Yeah, moving on. We are we are way off. Woo! Yeah, uh, so I, I think the best way to approach his theology is to start with his writings. Yeah. So if you're going to read Augustine, start with confessions. Mm -hmm. The first thing, Augustine was the first father that I ever read. Mm -hmm. And I, I read it really early on in ministry. So we're talking probably, for me, that was, when did I get my first job? 20, uh, 20. 20, no, 1998, 99, somewhere around there. And, uh, and man, I was looking at this book, and again, this is great radio when we're showing each other things that nobody else can see. <laughs> I, was, I was looking through this book, and I thought, hey, I got some highlights in here. I might pull out some of the highlights. Okay. I have like 12 highlights on every page. Yeah, I got a lot of highlights too. And that's just the way... That's the way, to me, the first three-fourths of Confessions goes. Mm -hmm. and, and the reason it is... So this, as you said sort of briefly, this is his autobiography and conversion story. Mm -hmm. It's written in a lot of ways like a prayer hmm. where he's addressing God directly. Right. He doesn't address the audience. He doesn't say, this is what you need to know about me. He addresses God. And said, God, this is where my heart was mm -hmm. when you spoke to me. Yeah, uh, And it's just fantastic like that. A, a lot of the biography stuff that we talked about already comes from here. Yeah, The oh, idea yeah. of him robbing is just from that first chapter. Uh, but he has, he has this way, even, even from the opening paragraph, uh, he says, You stir man to take pleasure in praising you. Because you have made us for yourself, and our heart is restless until it rests in you. Hmm. Do something with that. Hmm. Hmm. You know, just uh, all these great lines. Uh, let's see here. You are wrathful, yet remain tranquil. Mm. Right? Just talking about, in this, he's not talking about contradicti contradictions in God. He's talking mm. about how God is so far and above the human experience that he can express emotion the way that we do, but without the fall, mm. right? Wrathful but tranquil. Uh, you will a change, but yourself are unchanged mm. in your design. Right? Uh, say to my soul, I am your salvation. Just mm. pleading that God would, mm. would call him to faith. Uh... I, I do not contend with you in a court of law, for you are truth. Hmm. If you take quote of iniquities, Lord, who shall stand? 
right? He, the whole first portion is him acknowledging his sinful heart and his life before God. Talking about his studies, talking about the different people that God had sent his way, the way that they uh, influenced him, and, and then finally his conversion. Uh, he, he says about, in, in book two, adolescence, uh, I became putrid by pleasing myself and by being ambitious to win human approval. That's how he described himself as a teenager, young man. Putrid. Why? Because I wanted to please myself and win human approval. Right? I read this just barely out of adolescence. Right. That is probably why that's underlined. <laughs> Fair enough. Yeah. And I don't know if in, what is it now, Twenty more than 20 years gone by, I don't know if I'm ready to erase that underline. Right. <laughs> but that might also be my greatest downfall even today. Mm. Uh, but he goes through, he goes through this personal spiritual journey for a very long time. And then he gets into, uh, to a bit of teaching there towards the end. Oh yeah. On Genesis, the creation account. Yeah. He talks about the creation account and, uh, he has some pretty interesting thoughts on the creation account. Yeah. So, so here's what you got to know about Augustine. I, I feel like I'm pretty safe. I don't know how many scholars listen to this. Yeah. You always feel like you're going to say something. People are like, well, actually. Why it's not listening. We're good. Right. Augustine has this method of biblical interpretation mm -hmm. that says, well, of course there's the face value reading. But you also need to examine it to see if maybe there's this deeper meaning. Yeah. This sort of deeper meaning that is hidden in the imagery of it. I wouldn't say, I wouldn't accuse him of being like full on making stuff up mm -hmm. kind of thing that we've talked about others doing in the past when, when they get into these really deep weeds of, mm -hmm. well, you read it to mean this, but there's a whole other Gnostic mm. divine yeah. reading that exists that you just can't see. Yeah. He's not there. Mm -hmm. I think there are a couple of things that he talks about, even in the creation, mm -hmm. that he would have a hard time defending yeah. scripturally. I, I want to I maybe disagree with you slightly on sure. something you said, just because I think that there are a lot of instances in scripture where there is a meaning beyond the face value reading. Of the oh, for sure. And, and so if we only ever read it at the face value, we might miss out, but there's, there's, it's a spectrum, right? And Augustine is pretty far on the end of the spectrum where there's always a deeper meaning. There's all, like, right. So like, that's kind of where he, I think gets into, you know, some swampiness. Yeah. I would say there, I would say, I consider myself a very conservative biblical interpreter, mm. right? I, I need to be able to defend it with the text itself mm -hmm. before I'm going to teach it as this is how it is. Mm -hmm. I might say there are also ideas and opportunities that could go into this area, but I'm, gonna, mm. I'm always going to throw a caveat on that. Right. Uh, that's just me. Mm -hmm. um, Augustine is not that. No, he's not. <laughs> there are a lot of places where there's deeper meaning, but I also, I had a professor uh, in seminary who said, you know what, sometimes a tent peg is a tent peg. Sure, yeah. And its purpose is to hold down the tent. Right. And when you read about it in the tabernacle, you don't need to assume that it's anything more than a tent peg. Totally, totally. Right? Right. Uh, Augustine wouldn't stand for that. Yeah, no. Augustine would be like, no, there's got to be some sort of imagery yeah. behind a tent peg. And, <laughs> and sure, you can use that and you can create a whole... Uh, sermon right. around that as a as a visual, right? But that doesn't mean it's the meaning. Yeah, yeah. That's that's all. I, I think say. the tricky thing that yeah, the difficult thing in biblical interpretation, I think especially sometimes more in the Old Testament imagery is like you're right. Sometimes the ten pegs a ten ten peg. Sometimes a lampstand's a lot more than a lampstand, but mm -hmm. it's like trying to. <laughs> 
it's hard to, it's hard to suss that out though sometimes right but i, I think in the <laughs> instance of a lampstand it tells you that it's not usually it's there's or there's some other ceremony surrounding it that means like mm-hmm. this thing is special right or whatever right. yeah right but you know, yeah when if anyone wants to i mean i'd be happy to lend them my copy of uh, augustine's confessions i might just throw it on our recommended reading table next sunday yeah, yeah i i would the reason i say three-fourths mm-hmm. of confessions is all marked up for me mm-hmm is because that part of it is the confession. Mm-hmm. And then when he starts getting into the teachings of, in Genesis and stuff like that, it kind of lost me a he little bit. He takes like chapters to explain like the first verse yeah. of Genesis. <laughs> like right. that's that's the degree of like what he's getting into. And it yeah, it's it's not as... Yeah, it's not as densely edifying as the confessions, I guess you put it that yep. way. Yeah. And the last, the last time I've gone through confessions pretty recently, it's been three years Okay, in the greater scheme of things. That's pretty recently. Yeah. That's probably the uh, last time I went through it. Yeah. So when I first came to Memorial, the first thing I did before I even pulled books out of boxes hmm. was paint my office. Okay. Right. I came in after everyone was gone and I just started painting. Nice. And I painted all through the night. And I did it listening to Confessions, cool. an audiobook. Cool. Uh, and so when I was reading up and that sort of thing, like, you know, when you read something and it kind of takes your mind to a place, mm. it was just painting that office. Oh, that's neat. Yep. I love that kind of stuff. So uh, Augustine's Confessions, other, other serious works, City of God. Mm-hmm. So City of God, and, and some would argue all of his writings, but... That Rome has fallen mm-hmm. or is in the process of falling, mm-hmm. right? It's sitting there like the Jenga game that everyone stares at going, don't touch it. <laughs> there is no good move left. It's going to fall, right? Uh, he's, he's writing about, he's writing into that society. Mm-hmm. And in some ways, he is encouraging the church spiritually. And in City of God, he's not only encouraging them spiritually but he takes a moment to lay out politically mm. a couple of things that he thinks could be true right and the concept of city of god is that there are two cities the city of man and the city of god we are as christians cities uh, citizens of both mm-hmm. and he talks about the inadequacy of man to bring about righteousness in his world yeah let alone in his own heart mm-hmm but because he can't bring it about in his own heart, he can't bring it about in the world. Mm-hmm. And that we are forever dependent upon God because it is his righteousness and only in the city of God under his perfect rule and after we have been glorified by God mm-hmm. that we will ever live in this right peace that we were designed for. Right. Um, and until then, the best that anyone can hope for is that we would have Christian leaders who followed Christian principle to create earthly governments, but even those are going to have failings. Yeah, that's my take on City of God. Yeah, that's um, that's probably a good assessment. Yeah, he takes some time to like kind of like go after like paganism, mm-hmm. right, and be like, this is why the hope isn't there, and this right. is why the hope is in the Christian faith. But yeah, he presents yeah the idea of like the two two kind of cities moving through history kind of alongside one another right and then diverging on the last day right and and what the hope is for the citizens of the city of god versus the city of man right right and that's why the the take against paganism is is to say the pursuit of what will be in the city of god Mm -hmm. is the best that we can have now Mm -hmm. and that's why we have to reject these false religions and the influence that they have on us Mm -hmm. right i think it is also a good read, particularly if you're into theonomy. Mm. Um, I, I personally am not given that Christian state is an anticipation. Mm. Uh, and so I, I, I would then do to Augustine what I complain that Augustine does. Uh, and, and I would say, what is the deeper spiritual meaning under this? And, and not necessarily the uh, how then should, should we form our our governments right uh, right kind of a kind of a situation but theoretically 
mm-hmm. if leaders of the world were genuine believers seeking yeah. to lead with mm-hmm. based on Christian values, that would be a, an ideal this side of this side of eternity. Yeah, he's right, and I think I think when I say he's writing into his context, there were a lot of people. Not, I wouldn't say a majority, but there was a, a group of people, a groundswell of people, who started asking the question, when Rome was worshiping the Roman gods, mm. it was at the height of its power. Since Rome has become Christianized, mm-hmm. its power has weakened. Mm-hmm. Maybe they were onto something with those Roman gods. Right. Maybe there's something about that. And does Rome need to return to those gods? Are they angry with us? Mm. And so this is his way of saying, no... A, a right nation can exist under Christian values. This is not about mm. false gods that need to be appeased. Mm-hmm. Um, this is why there is a fall in humanity, mm-hmm. and and this is the only hope for anything other than that. Yeah, fall. no, for sure. Yeah, and I think the 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 lens of the two cities, the earthly city and the heavenly city, um, that you can find that throughout the scriptures too. These kind of mm-hmm. parallel lines. Um, that are that are kind of moving throughout history in, in a lot of different ways. It kind of repeats itself over and over again. So um, it can be a helpful a helpful thing to kind of consider. And obviously, like remembering that he's writing into a particular, you know, historical, cultural, political context. So it's not going to be a copy and paste application yep. for us, but good stuff for sure. And on Christian doctrine, mm-hmm. he he unpacks it a little bit, but but from City of God. We also start seeing very explicit statements, arguably for the first time, mm. of the version of predestination and election mm-hmm. that is going to become prominent in the Reformation. Mm-hmm. You agree with that, or do you uh, want to go back to... No, I would say, like, I mean, I think Paul makes it fairly explicit. Okay, hold on. <laughs> Just kidding. I'm kidding. I'm, I'm not kidding, but but I'm just I'm hold on. I'm saying the thing that people always say. Here, this is why that this is why this gets me. <laughs> you cannot go back to the scripture, right? Like the argument. The argument is: Have other church fathers and other thinkers interpreted the scripture in that way? I am just teasing you. But both you groups, me up there, Tim. Come both on. groups always want to go. <laughs> Well, actually, well, actually, John three sixteen, the, the source text yeah, yeah, says. But no, it's the question is not what the source text says. Yeah. The question is, what have people interpreted the court, the source text to mean? Yeah. So we have history? we have yeah. I would say in Augustine, a fully fledged, well articulated, thought out argumentation for uh, a doctrine of predestination election um, that would match well with what comes about in the Reformation. Yeah, even to the point that when Sproul talks about uh, division of the church, mm-hmm. a lot of times what we do now is we talk about the Reform versus the Arminian, mm-hmm. uh, which we'll get into like in months. Mm-hmm. Uh, but Sproul would go all the way back and call it the Augustinian mm-hmm. and the Semiplagians, mm-hmm. right? That's he's going to go all the way back to this period mm-hmm. because this is when we say Augustine is a, is the most influential ever. At some point, we're going to find ourselves in the Reformation, where the Catholic Church is making their point off of things that Augustine said, mm-hmm. and Luther is rebutting with Augustine, right? Right. Yeah. And that's not to say he's contradictory. It's just to say everyone reads Augustine. Yeah. So I, this is how I would summarize Augustine's theology. Augustine's theology, to a large extent, kind of solidified uh, mm-hmm. where the church would be at on multiple issues for a very long time. A lot of that came through even the Reformation. Right. Some of it didn't. Um but all of it was uh, formative mm-hmm. in the life of the universal Catholic Church. Right. Yeah. And so when we would say everything Calvin gets, he gets from Luther, and everything Luther gets, he gets from Augustine, mm-hmm. he's still a saint in the Catholic Church. Yeah. Yeah. And considered a doctor of theology mm-hmm. in the Catholic Church. Mm-hmm. 
right? He's that broadly read, mm-hmm. and and that influential. Like you said, at at some points in history, the question is not just interpreting scripture; it's interpreting Augustine. Yeah, Augustine said this, right? And so, therefore, it must be true. <laughs> What exactly did he mean by that? Now, to help, or we do want to help some people through through this idea too, because the, the idea of someone in today's day and age kind of writing something down and that being kind of the standard um, would just be something that's totally contrary to our, our understanding. Augustine isn't necessarily being novel in no. everything that he's writing down right. here, right? It's just, again, going back, he puts things down in a systematic, comprehensive way. That was well um, articulated, well circulated, and well preserved. So for those reasons, so like there might be some things that he's, you know, he's kind of coming to these realizations and putting pieces together, but it's not like this guy just sits down, writes a bunch of books and says, now my books are the basis for the church moving forward. That's not just, I just don't want people to get the wrong idea of, of his influence and and how it all worked out. Right. So he... He is involved in, in a lot of great controversies. Mm-hmm. The Pelagian controversy is the most important. Yes. Uh, Pelagius is a teacher who is uh, within the church. He's British. His, <laughs> Believe it or not, which, would, which was rare at this time. His, his was major a... argument mm. is that the doctrine of original sin doesn't, isn't a thing. Mm-hmm. And although it's true when Paul says all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, it is perceivably possible that a person could live their entire life and not sin. Mm-hmm. It has never happened except for in the person of Jesus, mm-hmm. but it is possible. Mm-hmm. And Augustine was not having that. Yeah. One, Augustine's doctrine of original sin is kind of the basis for City of God. Mm-hmm. Uh, and all of the City of God, which is a pretty lengthy book, is is an explanation of why the doctrine of original sin is really a thing. And we, we can't get away from the idea that we are born as sinners. Mm. And it's not even that we've chosen to commit our first sin and then we become a sinner. We're, we're just born into sin. Mm-hmm. And that's how we are. Mm-hmm. Uh, Paul says even before we're born. Mm-hmm. Um, and so he comes at him hard and says, you've devalued the cross if you hold to that Mm -hmm. if you hold to that then then it is plausible that there could be a person who would be able to live and die without christ Mm -hmm. and be okay and that's not okay uh so he has a lot of papers to this end yeah uh also from city of god we because we kind of got into it and then backed out of it again his his concepts of predestination that become the foundations for reformed theology Mm -hmm. that there are those who are elect Mm -hmm. in god from the foundations of the earth who will become believers based on god's divine providence Mm -hmm. they will be sustained with no opportunity of backsliding or falling away Mm -hmm. the doctrine of preservation is very augustine yes where where is Whereas we can say that the doctrine of election, the word election is used throughout Scripture, mm-hmm. and talking about the elect is something that has happened throughout other church fathers. That, that person is preserved, is almost distinctly Augustinian, um, and, and sort of part of his Platonic influence. Uh, but it's it's a huge shaper sure. in the church, and and when we talk about things that the Catholic Church would reject, that's one. Yeah, yeah. That's where the modern Catholic Church would say, well, Augustine kind of got excited and let his <laughs> let his rhetoric, his rhetorical momentum, get away from him. Yeah. Uh, and so they would they would dial it back there. Mm-hmm. Uh, his doctrine on the Trinity. He wrote a book on the Trinity. I like a lot of what Augustine says. Mm-hmm. I'm gonna I'm gonna come out right now and say that I'm putting myself out there. Mm-hmm. I'm not a fan of Augustinian Trini- Trinitarianism. Okay, what's what's wrong with it? And when I say I'm putting myself out there, I'm gonna say Jonathan Edwards loved it. Okay. <laughs> and put it forth. <laughs> uh, and 
Piper is a fan of it. Piper's a fan of anything Edwards does. Yeah. Um, and there was a book written about five years ago uh, about the Trinity promoting this same idea. And I'm just so. The idea is God the Father emanates from nothing. Okay. Okay. We're good with that. From himself or what? Yeah. Okay. Sure. The Son is begotten of the Father. Okay. The Spirit emanates equally and simultaneously as the love between the Father and the Son, which in my mind removes the personhood of the Holy Spirit and makes the existence of the Holy Spirit dependent upon the Father and the Son. And although it is argued that it is from eternity, so there was never a beginning of it. There's a level of dependency mm. that almost in requires chronology. That is to say, if, if sorry, I'm getting <laughs> really technical here. Uh, that is to say, there has to be, there almost has to be a starting point in that. Mm. And and so the dependency that the Holy Spirit has for His existence. Mm on the love relationship between the father and son, I just don't see in scripture. Right. Eternally begotten. But that's, that, that's a phrase that people have used to describe not only the relationship between father and son, but, but spirit with father and son. But yeah. Yeah. I mean, sometimes, okay. I think sometimes here's the thing with, with Trinitarian, um, like books on the Trinity is like, you can't wrap your head around it. Right. Stop trying to, apart from what has been revealed to us and we know is true. Stop trying to come mm -hmm. up with analogies. Stop trying to like make sense of something that is beyond our capacity to fully understand. Yeah. Uh, and and that's, I think that's kind of my, my just beef with people who get too deep. I'm all about the Trinity, but like when people are like, Oh, I, I, I finally figured it out and mm -hmm. let me inform you all what this mystery of God, I, I can, I've got the corner on defining the person of God. Yeah, it's it's the ineffable. It's the unexplainable. Yeah. And when we try to explain the unexplainable, what we're going to do is highlight our mistakes. Mm -hmm. That's what's going to happen. Those things are going to stand out more than anything else. Mm -hmm. And and so that's I think I think that 90% of what Augustine says is fantastic. Mm -hmm. I'm not a fan of the trinitarianism. Yeah. Uh also the like eternal virginity of Mary was a thing he was all about. But kind of everyone yeah, was for a long time, unfortunately. By this point in history onwards, that's just like, that's just the norm until you get to the Reformation. Mm -hmm. Until people are like, well, no. Right. <laughs> why, why does Mary need to why be is it necessary? Yeah, I know. lifted up? I know, right? I know. Yeah. Um, but yeah, there's a whole lot of things that like he kind of is one of the first was articulate. The difference between the visible and invisible church. Mm -hmm. Like he, this is something that he lays out. Also city of God, right? Yeah. Well, yeah. Right. Um, the soul body distinction, but both being necessary to make up a person, um, which really you see coming from his Manichaeanism, mm, Manichaeism right? Yeah. Like there, there's, I think I think some of that has to do with writing in response to having spent time in this other religion. Yeah, true. I mean, like his his contributions. I mean, he talks about just war. Like he talks about mm -hmm. how a Christian should essentially be a pacifist, except when, when mm -hmm. not responding to gross evil to defend others would be sinful. Right. So he kind of, he wades into those murky waters, um, those philosophical things. Um, he opposed slavery, uh, wrote at length about, um, his opposition to slavery, much more positive towards the Jews than, than church fathers typically were because mm -hmm. they weren't very kind toward the Jewish right. people. Anti-Semitism is a yeah. huge thing, even, even through the Reformation. Yeah, and he's not that way. Mm -hmm. He says they're not right in rejecting Christ, but he ultimately sees that they're going to come to know Christ before the end. In eschatology, started out as a pre-mill, um, but actually moved off from that and is considered to be one of the first to develop a systematic all-millennial position. Yeah, um, that that probably needs to be explained a little bit, and we got thirty seconds. So, <laughs> pre 
<laughs> so he, so rather than the thousand years being between a, a, a resurrection of the saints and then a general resurrection of everyone, right. and there being a thousand-year middle reign where Jesus, where Jesus rules. rules on earth, but it's not the new heavens and new earth, it's that the thousand years is is representative of the time between Christ's ascension and his return, where he mm-hmm. is ruling spiritually at the right hand of the Father. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that is what, that that's the all-millennial position and kind of a post-millennial position, but that's a whole more complicated thing, so we're not going to get into it. <laughs> anyways, so that's, yeah. So anyways, he's a precursor to a lot of ideas that develop further down the road. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Anything else you want to do on Augustine? Honestly, there's so much we could talk about. It could be a second episode. I'm sitting here a little bit disgusted with us that we only talk about the Pelagian controversy mm. in passing. I know. And it's probably his most famous moment. Yeah. But but you got to we got to roll through <laughs> we history. Have to. <laughs> we he's, have he's to. He's the first man to get his own episode. Yeah, we're like 3 months in and we got we got a lot of ways to we're go. We're still so. in the year 400. Yeah. <laughs> we got 1600 plus years to go. Yes, we do. Yes, we do. All right. So Augustine, read him, read about him. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you can borrow my copy of his confessions if you want. Just hit me up. And if his is gone, you can borrow mine. Awesome. Thanks for listening. This podcast is a resource of Memorial Baptist Church in Stratford, Ontario, in cooperation with the Gospel Coalition of Canada and is produced by Alex Walker. Mm-hmm. Take care. <laughs>